Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is a podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. We are in the last quarter of the year, and it's a great time to reflect on our accomplishments and plan some new goals for 2020. As part of that, it's crucial that we begin to assess the state of our business. In our latest ebook, you'll learn how to troubleshoot your sales problems using the sales performance assessment. You'll also develop a breakthrough strategy that can help your company achieve major sales growth in the coming year. Go ahead and grab a copy. You can find the link in today's show notes at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 201. We have, in fact, broken that 200 episode mark. (laughs) Our theme for the month of November is gratitude. Um, We're just starting that month. But we actually decided to take a little bit of a step back. And we're going to continue for today discussing the theme that we had in October, which is assessing the state of your business. Um, The guest that we're talking about today has just a really critical uh, perspective on that. And we thought that it would be really important for our listeners to hear it. So make sure to check out the blog um, where you can find all of the posts that we shared in October, and you'll start to see um, new new ideas and new concepts coming out related to gratitude um, throughout the month of November. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and today I am speaking to the co-founder and president of Max Edwards Company, which is a business consulting and professional development firm that specializes in building creative and self-sustaining recruiting strategies for current and future work force needs. Um, As a fun fact, today's guest is the third generation of his family to have worked in the HR and recruiting space. So he's got some kind of history there um, and has worked for really uh, some media companies that you'll all have heard of, including Fox and the WB in the recruiting space. Our guest today is Brian Wright. We are so glad to have you, Brian, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Elizabeth. I'm so happy to be here. I really... um appreciate um, our good friend um, Joe Banda and Laura Marchoff for allowing me to be here. Absolutely. It's um, it's always just great to me to, to hear from people with different perspectives and um, different histories and, and just how they think about things, I think is important. And so um, I just shared the, the very, very, very top level kind of who you are and what you do. But I'd love if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Um, and maybe share a little bit about where you got started, um, where your passion for business or recruiting began, and then how have, how's the journey been to where you are right now? Well, thank you. You know, it's I've had a chance to think about this, and I, I think there's a, a simple but I hope engaging way of explaining it. So I'm, I'm from Pasadena, California, um, home of the Roses, and um, you have the Tournament of Roses, you have the Rose Bowl, you have Caltech. NASA, JPL, and it's interesting. We grew up there. It's a rural town. And so as kids, we're coming up and we're not really knowledgeable of all of those entities as businesses. We only saw them Mm -hmm. as events or places to drive by or, or go to. So, and I just want to kind of start there because it's interesting. I was able to really piece a lot of this together later in life. And it's really helped me in my transition from um, the various companies that you mentioned, as well as in supporting other people along their journeys. So as you had mentioned, I'm third generation human resources. Um, Obviously, human resources, the term wasn't around three generations ago. uh, But my grandmother in the late 1970s, early 80s, 
had um, been running a jobs program, she launched something called the Cedar Program, which is where mm -hmm. people were able to work at the Rose Bowl, funny enough, and we were the event staff. We were some of the first people to ever wear yellow shirts at events, and we were providing customer service and security guidance and all these other things to um, you know the fans that were coming out, and that was actually my first job. So I worked at, from the ages of 12 to 14, and these were times where we were getting paid, um, you know, in cash right there. And this was also the building blocks of my first interviews because, you know, when I went to interview at 18 or, or 19, I, I did had, that was my only experience to present, <clears throat> pardon me. And it was really how I synthesized that experience is what, you know, started to, um, I, I think, put me in um, situations of being successful, um, interviewing wise at least. And so in boarding, I, um, you know, having grown up in Southern California, I also didn't know a lot about the entertainment industry and had no mm -hmm. real understanding that um, obviously more than 50% of our economy here is based on that <clears throat> um, across the different verticals, um, you know, and, and what that may be. But it's interesting after graduating college, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo um, on a football scholarship was able to play there, um, wanted to find a business application for my skill set, which I felt was assessing other talent. The way I used this was in, in football, I don't think I was that good. And, um, <laughs> you know, but what I, what I did do was use a lot of my um, intellect to break down opponents and figure out what their weaknesses were. And, you know, I was essentially um, you know, fairly successful doing that. Um, but I, I, again, I was always good at picking teams. So if we were going to play basketball on a, on a pickup game, I would, you know, select four other people and I would realize who each of these people were in terms of skill set. And I would play the opposite skill set. So it always made us a cohesive yeah. team. And so <clears throat> the fact that this podcast is about sales is really interesting because I had three choices in, in school to, um, I was thinking about production operations management as a, mm -hmm. a field to go into. There was marketing and sales. And then there was human resources under the business administration umbrella. And when I started thinking about building teams, I always loved the idea of being a general manager or um, an, an athletic director at a school because it was helping to essentially form coaches, teams, and build programs. And so I, I must admit, the fastest way of getting out of school was also my HR degree. So I <laughs> the fastest, but then also, you know, what I thought aligned, you know, best with my skills. And so the story is, and this was before cell phones, but I remember going on campus near our library to call my father on a payphone and let him know, hey, I chose HR. And he says, you know, that's what I did, right? And I'm like, no, I didn't realize that. <laughs> didn't grow up. Like, um, my parents divorced when I was seven. And look, I always okay. knew he was a professional. Um, I used to get these shirts with different university names on them. Um, Tuskegee and Morris Brown. And, you know, it was really interesting. I didn't know that he was a college recruiter back when I was young. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it was just like, 
but I always had it in my mind. Wow. That, you know, I knew he worked. I know, you know, he spent a lot of time doing that. So anyway, so I actually then chose without knowing it, the family field, the family discipline. And it was really because in most of my uncles, um, aunts, everyone was either teachers, um, mm-hmm. some kind of civic, um, you know, um, players in, in terms of, um, especially back in the Midwest where they were from, and then also um, entrepreneurs in terms of starting programs. So I just feel so thankful to have found it. And obviously, um, you know, so much um, thanks to God in, in that way. But the fact that sales, you know, what I, I guess in tying this all together, human resources and dealing with people and, and specifically recruiting is so much of sales, but it's a sales that I can believe in because I can, I can really assess people and then try to help them along the way. But I'm selling hiring managers on the skills that I'm selling the individual on wanting to go a certain route or coming to our company. So that's really my intro into sales, which was, uh, it was really a good path. Definitely. Um, I noticed just uh, a few really key threads there. I'm going to actually start with what you said at the end, because I think this is so incredibly important. Um, We work sometimes with staffing agencies and recruiting companies and, um, and just individual recruiters that I've had conversations with. It is one of the most sales intensive roles that there is, because like you said, so you're selling, first of all, if you're, if you're selling your services to a company, you're selling them on the idea that I can find candidates for you. That's a sale. Then you're selling individual candidates on being willing to work with you and your firm to try to find placement and they might be happily employed. So there's another sale that you have Mm -hmm. to do. And then you're selling individual um, companies on individual candidates. You know, this candidate is the right candidate for you. And obviously those, and then you're selling the candidate on the actual job opportunity. So you're doing kind of four different kinds of sales and each one requires a different level of intensity, a different kind of skill set and questions and and best practices and expertise. And so some of the best salespeople out there, some of the most professional, most, um, most, uh, you know, well-educated and, 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 and um, the ones with, with just great knowledge and, and experience are in recruiting. And a lot of people don't realize just how much um, selling happens there. Yeah, I mean, great assessment on your part. I think when people oftentimes consider human resources, number one, they fall into it. So it's not necessarily a, a distinct decision that people are making to go that route. But oftentimes when people... Um, you know, they're, they're, they're saying, oh yeah, I like HR and they'll say, yeah, I'm a people person. And I was, and Mm -hmm. I always think about that. And in my job, most of the time, maybe 85% of my interactions are telling people, no, I'm, I'm telling the candidates. So, you know, you know, it's great to meet you. I mean, unfortunately they're going with, uh, you know, another candidate for a role or, you know, we're, we're pitching a hiring manager on the candidate that they want. And unfortunately, we don't have the money to, to secure them. They're going to go with another offer. So I feel like so much of my role is actually being able to professionally and um, um, I guess acutely being able to deliver bad news to people. 
that I'd say, you know, you just think yeah. people, you know, being a people person is the, is the key to this, you're, you're, you're mistaken. Definitely. And that's one of the things that actually we find so many people are bad at and afraid of. And the way you see that is in how people buy. Because if you um, have decided not to move forward with a company um, that's trying to sell something to you, and you hide and you don't give them that news. And instead you just kind of dump their phone calls. Um, guess what? You don't know how to say no. And like you said, in your field, you have to, you, you can't just like ghost on a candidate that you have been working with. And so that's a really important professional skill that I think a lot of people don't really develop. And at some point you have to be able to give bad news in a kind and professional and appropriate way um, just to, put somebody um, in the right place for, for continuing to continuing to move forward. Because you know what, I'd rather know that something isn't the right opportunity for me. So I can get myself, you know, energized and, and committed and engaged in something else. Because, uh, you know, not everything works out. That's fine. I think all of us are adults and are able to understand and absorb that. But it's when somebody is trying to kind of protect themselves and protect me from it, that I don't have the ability to, um, to actually demonstrate how good, how well I can do that. Yeah, no, you're you're right, and I think it's a grind as well. Um, to be quite honest with you, it's a, it's also the differentiation between being an internal recruiter and someone external, because internal mm-hmm. recruiters are on this um, conveyor belt of you know a, an un, a thankless grind of having to do nothing but um, you know satisfy internal customers and unfortunately deliver bad news. And then the, the, the plus sign of it or the addition to this is you also end up hearing about people once they are in the jobs not being happy. So, you know, yeah. now you're, you're feeling, oh, I sold a lemon to somebody. So um, I think internal recruiters get a lot of grief, but they are actually ones that are, you know, doing the, the largest amount of work um, without any um, recognition. And so I give them a lot of credit, but that is actually a big reason why I chose to, um, you know, leave corporate and support it from the outside, because I really feel like I'm more of a intersection between companies and the talent versus just being a company agent. And so it, it really mm-hmm. kind of speaks to my spirit and my soul more to be on the outside. And if I can't necessarily place someone our company focuses on professional development. So instead of just working on giving people fish, I can teach them how to fish. Yeah, that, that is so incredibly powerful. Um, I, I just love back to back to your story, how you kind of have taken all of those different aspects of your experience from where you grew up and what you saw around you to the, the work that you were doing as a kid to even how you experienced being on the football team and and how you discovered your skill set there. I think a lot of people discover kind of key character traits about themselves in things like playing sports. You see, you know, are, are you maybe not the best athlete out there, but you're a great encourager to other people, or are you great at seeing the skill set in other people? And, or are you the best athlete? And, and you can see that, you know, how, how you're leveraging that skill set and what that can teach you about, um, about your career moving forward. And so I, I love how you fell into, into recruiting. Now, one of the things that, um, 
that you mentioned is that you, you started in that first part of your career really working very directly. You were doing the recruiting and the talent acquisition. Um, like you said, sometimes it's a pretty thankless job. And now you've moved into consulting with companies and you're helping them with their processes, helping them figure out, um, like you said, teaching them to fish. What have you learned about the mistakes companies are making in their recruiting? Why is it that they need to work with somebody like you? That's a great question. I think, and I also want to leverage the last part of what you mentioned about people's awareness and, you know, how they, how they look at their careers. And this will feed into, I think, why companies are, are missing huge opportunities. So, and it really starts with that awareness of the job. And I'm not saying I have any, you know, special skills aside from understanding other people's skills, but you know, it's interesting. So just to give you some more background. So I, when I started in recruiting, I started as a temp and being a temp, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't realize, but it was essentially an audition. And I got into probably a higher level and a more exclusive type of role in entertainment, funny enough, but I didn't realize the gravity of it. So I started as a temp, worked for about three weeks. They told me it was going to be like a three-month trial. Within three weeks, they wanted to bring me on staff. Um, So that was – but it was really um, one of those things where I had no clue. It was my first job. I I didn't know what was going to happen, so I was just going for the ride. Um, But I obviously was able to use that experience to to coach people later. But it was in a high-volume recruiting area where – you know, we were doing a real mass amount of jobs. And I also um, supported a professional staffing group that was doing project-based recruiting where they were launching Universal's Islands of Adventure, which was a new theme park for Universal Studios Recreation Group in Orlando. And this was before Orlando mm-hmm. was really Orlando. So I was listening to recruiters selling people on having to relocate to Orlando to live. And this was oftentimes leaving their their steady jobs and then moving away to an area that wasn't as, um, you know, established or fruitful or, you know, it didn't have a strong brand as it does now. And so, again, selling mm-hmm. was, was a big part of that initial experience. I went on to the Disney stores where I was working in entertainment retail And even from there, you know, supporting the corporate office, you know, watching people work in um, soft lines and hard lines of product, um, just the fact of having 714 stores um, worldwide um, was, um, you know, pretty amazing. But that was a very um, interesting, tumultuous experience. And I ended up moving on from there to House of Blues Entertainment, which was, again, food and beverage, multi-unit. Um, but also production, so very much project-based. They were moving into digital, which is a very um, forward-thinking business in the turn of the century, um, 2000, 2001. Definitely. And so getting that experience was really interesting. And then obviously after that, I moved into television and worked for the WB Television Network for um, almost five years, um, supporting a broadcast network, small, but about 400 people, 
but really um, a part of Warner Brothers, which was, you know, the much larger parent company. Um, so, I mean, again, synthesizing that experience. And then lastly, moving on to Fox Networks Group, which was this aggregation of multiple networks, multiple cultures within all of those networks, um, fast pace, multiple seasons, multiple season cycles of content. And then also from a sports standpoint, mm-hmm. you had huge tentpole events that impacted our recruiting cycle and what we were looking for. And the reason why I bring all this up is, unfortunately, most people are not looking at their experience in a detailed way. In interview situations, most people Mm -hmm. don't know why they're good. So they don't necessarily know how to present their achievements. They don't know how to present their successes and even their challenges in a compelling way that would make people learn how they how they learn you know how have they adapted to challenging situations that they weren't successful at but that ends up being a strength in an interview if you present it the right way and so just i mean i, I just bringing that up i think it's really a challenge because even and people will blame it on millennials or gen z and you know, obviously older groups, but I think most people really have to take a deeper dive into what has made them good. And then instead of just when they're looking for a job or, or they're running into a bad boss or a bad team, and then they start to kind of focus on their careers, they really have to take a continuous learning kind of mindset in order to always be in position to have the most professional value on the market. And I think that's where from a talent side, that's how people think. And it's a big miss for them. And I think it makes it very difficult when it comes to this unemployment rate being so low, but maybe they're not seeing the growth that other people are seeing. It's it's because that professional value, and obviously it's also nepotism and who you know and all those other things, but I'm much more focused on if you can dominate in your own way and show a strong technical acumen and skill set that has you achieving on, on all levels, and you can explain that, then you can overcome who you don't know. Because I think what will happen is, and my father always said this, it's not really about who you know, it's about who knows you and what are they saying about you when you're not in the room. And so that's, that's the talent side. Now, I can quickly tie this back to the employer side and say, Employers are making the same mistake in terms of they're only tending and trying to cultivate their talent when the talent is a squeaky wheel. They're not Mm -hmm. spending the amount of time needed in terms of figuring out how can I actually engage and um, develop and encourage um, high performance. So what happens mm-hmm. is when you need talent, then you're going to a job fair. You know, when you when you have yeah. someone come to you and they ask for more money and you can't give it to them, you know, then you're thinking about, oh, how you know, you know, what do I do to keep this person? Or <laughs> can I get him a coach, a mentor, exactly, or something? Exactly. And then also on the um, you know employee relations side, which is so prevalent. Oh, now we're having a problem. And now my top performer is clashing with somebody, you know, what do I do? Or, hey, I need to groom someone into a manager. 
this person's my best salesperson. I'm going to now move them into a management position where they're doing less sales, but they're man, they're teaching hopefully other people how to be great salespeople like them. And so Mm -hmm. the analogy is back with um, like Magic Johnson, why he wasn't a great coach is because he would tell people, well, wait a minute, you didn't do this move or you didn't, you know, make this decision. And it's because he's such a, you know, phenom, these other people weren't able to make those same decisions. And so we really have to focus on how we are selecting, developing, um, and constantly encouraging through, you know, engaging management, our talent, not just when we need, you know, to supply workforce need, but essentially 365 days, 24 hours a day. Definitely. I, I love that. There's so much that you said there. Back to, um, and, and I think, the, like you said, those are very tied together. So in terms of individuals and professionals, that's something that we see all the time. People don't keep their resume up to date. So then the only time they're updating it is when they're looking for a new job. And if you've been at your current company for five years, right, you don't remember what your accomplishments are over that period of time. And so then you're frantically trying to think of of what did you accomplish? I remember I wrote a blog post and at this point, this was years ago, but where I just recommended a simple practice of on a quarterly basis, are you documenting your accomplishments? So that, you know, it's not even just for when you're That's looking true. for a new job, but when you're when you're having that year end conversation with your boss and, and you're talking about your performance over the year, have you documented anything that you're proud of? Otherwise, you're just depending on their own memory. Absolutely. And so people need to take yeah, a, a stronger sense of ownership of their own career and personal and professional development. And like you said, it's it's important to look back on your history. You might even look back to when you were a babysitter or when you had a paper route or when you had a lemonade stand as a kid. And how did you approach um, every time that you were involved in working? And and what did you learn about yourself? And what can you learn about um about how you can leverage those skill sets in the professional world. I think back to how I interacted with my younger siblings. I'm the second of six kids, and I was a bossy manager when I was six years old. And guess what? <laughs> I'm still a manager today. And you know, those those skills come out. It's not just about you know the sibling relationships is kind of a cliche, but it it you can see it. And a lot of times, especially when people have taken kind of the circuitous path to get to where they are, they don't always think about um, what are the, what are the trends, you know, what are the the unique skills that I can leverage at all these different jobs that I might've had. Um, And that's something that I should, I should maybe develop. I should at the very least be able to speak to. And, and I can put that at the, you know, at the top of my resume or at the the forefront of any interviews that I'm doing, because um, it can create a common thread in a maybe kind of interesting career history. (laughs) Yeah, no, you. I think you laid that out very well. Uh, you know, there's a there's a technique um, similar to the quarterly piece that you're mentioning. That if as long as you think of everything mm-hmm. as a project, because in a project, you know, there's typically a, a beginning, there's a purpose, there's a plan. You know, there's an initial execution, there's different roles, and then there's an outcome and usually some form of recap. And so if you can apply that 
not only to you know different increments of of time you know of your background but also in the daily work what it does is it takes that because people are really great at writing resumes in a dutiful mm-hmm. way like you know very programmed very computer i did this and you know i don't want to uh, mimic the computer but it's 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 they sound yeah. like siri right <laughs> like this is what i did you know um but i think if you can understand who you worked with and i actually have a theory or a, a strategy around resume development that people really need to be asking themselves for every bullet for every company that they're um that they're writing about is you know what was the project you know what were the circumstances what was the timeline that you had to deliver on who did you work with uh, were there any special technology tools that you had to use um you know as you were executing you know what were those challenges and then what was your delivery mm-hmm. and so there's a way of saying that obviously when you're not writing five lines but to be able to hit that um, as much as you can on a resume for every point that you're talking about your like you said your management skills or your um, people selection skills or sales etc what happens is you're really able to give a thoughtful and comprehensive answer in the interviews so a lot of our resume development strategies through our company they're also based on helping people prepare to interview mm-hmm. And so the more that you know about yourself and you've gone through that self-analysis, um, again, um, citing you know, my father, um, he would say preparing to improvise. He was a, he was a Marine. Uh-huh. And so he always talked about that improvisation and preparation uh, was obviously the key to his success. So um, I say that to candidates as much as you can, you know, foresight is insight. Be, be always looking at, you know, where you are. You had mentioned you know, understanding the areas where you're strong, obviously don't overuse those, but then also you're constantly working on the areas where you're not Absolutely. as strong. And, and another, the, the reason why this is important, especially um, from a recruiter standpoint is we're doing behavioral interviews to where we're tending to get people to not just say what they think the answer is, but in previous situations, like you were saying, being the second oldest, like, you know, what did you actually do in that situation? And if we can ask enough of those questions, you're typically going to kind of fall back to what that normal behavior is. And so behavioral interviewing is a, it's a blessing and a curse because, and it's similar to a horoscope. It could, it can make you feel like you're locked into a cycle of, of our pattern of behavior. But if you use it properly, it can actually tell you that you can start acting out new behaviors and take control of that and be able to, we call it self-directed development to where you can really start to grow your own um, professional background without needing a new job or a new responsibility from your boss. And next thing you know, in the interview process, you have something new to talk about. You have a different behavior um, to mention that shows much more adaptability, flexibility, and more well-rounded skill set. Absolutely. I think just the idea of thinking of your job as, as a series of projects, what that also gets to is why. 
you did what you did. And I think that is always more powerful. You know, we talk about sales, you need to, you need to be focused on the why, but in, in everything in life, if you can connect to a why, if you can connect to the reason behind something, it's significantly more compelling than a what. Uh, a what is is typically going to be kind of dry and a why is going to be engaging and, and interesting and, and it's going to spark um, curiosity and, and a desire to be involved. Um, and, and as you were sharing the story a little bit ago about, um, you know, a company that might be trying to take their best salesperson and, and develop them into a sales manager, I think that really speaks to um, a couple of different things. First of all, if as an organization, you don't know the skill sets um, and 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 the character traits and and the the unique approaches of each of your key team members, um, you don't know maybe which of your sales reps might be the one that could be successful in management versus the one that wouldn't, right? Because some of them are going to be able to um, to communicate their. Um, communicate with people who don't have the same natural ability that they do. It's like the example, um, they always say the top athletes are very rarely effective coaches. Like you were sharing Wayne Gretzky. I'm a hockey fan. Um, Wayne Gretzky did uh, spend a brief period of time as a coach and he is one of the greatest, if not the greatest hockey player to ever live. And he wasn't a terribly effective coach because everything just came incredibly easy to him. And so he'd just say, you know, do the thing. And people are like, "I, I can't, do that thing <laughs> and be like, but, but why not just do the thing? Right. Um, and that's a, a little bit of a, an exaggeration perhaps, but um, it, it, some sales reps who would be promoted into management who've never developed or demonstrated any sort of skill at teaching and at mentoring and at sharing with people, those are probably not going to be your most effective sales managers, but then you might see another sales rep and, and they can, they're successful at sales, right? There, there's a reason that, that you're willing to promote them, but you notice that they also, um, have, have historically provided kind of mentorship and coaching to people. And they've always been ones who are, who are willing to take that time and spend with their colleagues. And, and when a new hire starts, they're the one who says, you know, I'm happy to be their, their coach. They can ride along with me. They're probably going to be a much more effective manager. And so thinking about knowing your team well enough to be able to, to make that assessment rather than just say, you know, oh, this guy's been here the longest, so um, he must be the one that we're going to promote. And and if you don't invest that time in, in learning those skill sets, you're really missing out as a company on a lot of um, great potential for um, for growth in your team. And, and people enjoy growing and and you're really kind of removing that possibility from them. Yeah, no, I th- I think you're um, you're hitting on it. I mean, look, I, it's challenging for companies because you know who has time, and and you know, and everyone is trying to keep up with the marketplace and competitors. And but I think for for anybody, the the top salesperson going into management or someone that has more of just the core propensity to be a great manager. You know, it's funny, it, there's almost a partnership because the great manager still needs to understand what high performance looks like and have lived it a little bit in order to then truly be able to inspire that in others and teach that in others. Um, same thing with the best salesperson. Um, you know, that person needs to understand the core principles and what a good management style is mm-hmm. and and how best to engage different people that aren't exactly like their skill set, similar to your Wayne Gretzky um, example and, and, and the Magic Johnson one. I mean, absolutely. But I think companies need to be the ones that are the, you know, 
the, the intermediary. They have to be the ones that decide, you know, we're going to spend the time, we're going to invest the money to develop someone and give them opportunity to really grow. And I was talking to another um, client um, not that long ago about um, a lot of the project examples that we set up. We do pilot projects for people um, because what we want to create is a, as a simulation outside of the workplace where we can almost um, have people emulating what high performance looks like, but not necessarily be trying it as in a live situation. And if you think about for managers, if this is the first time they're going into a management role, I mean, they're literally in a sink or swim, um, you know, crash and burn situation with real live people. And if they're not good at management, they could really disrupt the team, impacts productivity, um, you know, it's, it's kind of scorched earth versus giving them a chance to run a couple of projects externally, you know, get the feel of how to direct people and to coach and manage mm -hmm. and um, set plans and hold people accountable. But it's not necessarily that core team that they were just a part of and now they're managing. And I've, again, just that intentional way of bringing someone along and not just kind of throwing them in the fire is so important for companies to think about. And I think that also, um, just to your earlier question, because I don't think I ever really addressed it all, what people should be looking at, um, you know, now um, or in the future in terms of recruiting. But the thought is, you know, during times where people think it's slowing down, <laughs> you know, or, you know, this, the end of this year into next, I mean, Really, those are the times where to spend more qualitative time dealing with your um, your workforce and your teams is so important mm -hmm. because if not, they're out looking during these times. And, you know, it'd be much better to spend time on how to how are we going to reset going into the new year? And in, in terms of your own professional development, you know, what are your interests? This is what we see. You know, let's find a way of meeting in the middle and let's figure out um, whether it be courses or let's pick a, a venture philanthropy based project that we can do in house where, you know, you volunteer some time, you know, we'll figure out a stipend or something. But let's work on some of those core skills that you have and put you in a situation of emulating success. And that way, when you come back to your core job beginning 2020, you know, we're all energized and ready to go. And so these are just different strategies that people can apply. But the, but the key point is, and I think what you're bringing up, is there needs to be a constant tending and cultivation of your internal workforce in order to retain them. And funny enough, from a recruiting standpoint, when you do that, that sets the culture of when people interview with you, they're gonna see that culture and wanna be a part of it. Now, everyone uses Glassdoor, and I'm not a big fan of it, but um, I hear so many people worried about their rating. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like professional Yelp. And they're like, oh, we need to get more comments to you know, support you know, um, that we're a positive environment. And I'm like, you gotta work on that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not. You can't just buy that brand. You got to really tend to and control your brand storytelling. And I think that it goes back to behavioral interviewing for the individual. If the organization is walking the walk, 
with how they tend to and support their internal talent, external talent hear about that, and it becomes a self-sustaining cycle of recruiting that hopefully will be low cost and fruitful for years to come. Absolutely. I think um, if if you've got a bad rating, that's a symptom, not something to treat necessarily on its own, right? You don't want to just work on fixing the symptom. You want to work on fixing the underlying condition that's causing that symptom. Or, or you're just going to get all your executives to write good reviews on Glassdoor. And then a year from now, you're going to look at it and be like, oh, wow, we've got more bad reviews again. Um, it's not something that you can just kind of fix in a, in a light way. You really have to have to work on improving culture. All right. Absolutely. So we've, I think we've kind of touched on a lot of this already, but I'm going to ask it as an explicit question anyway, um, because we, we have been extending this theme from October in terms of assessing the state of your business. So if, if there's a company that's looking at their recruiting or their talent development practices, um, looking back at 2019 and planning 2020, what are some of the key things that they should be thinking about as they're, as they're making that evaluation? Well, I think up front, there, there has to be the first question of the why. So I'm, I'm going to leverage your, your point earlier is if it's based on growth and, and, hey, you know, we need to meet certain growth objectives, then I think your recruiting strategy and thought process is going to be one way. If it's based on, um, you know, not being able to retain talent and, or needing to retool or, um, you know, create better bench strength then again, the recruiting strategy is going to be um, a different direction. Mm-hmm. But all in all, that level of assessment is really critical for any kind of senior leader um, thinking about um, the talent acquisition or talent development challenges that they have. Um, the other piece is, I think, really starting to focus on um, looking at how people are evaluated and how um incentives are set up inside of the business mm-hmm. because what happens is now obviously in smaller organizations i think it's it's much more it's it's easier to for senior leaders to have a view all the way down and really have their finger on the pulse of of what's going on but i think in larger organizations uh, most people run into the standpoint of only being acutely aware of the workforce and different trends through reports and metrics. Mm-hmm. And obviously those reports and metrics aren't real live breathing people. They're not unique. They're, you know, <laughs> you know, they don't have all the family factors. <laughs> yeah, a little dry, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally a little sterile. Um, but so in that sense, I think spending more time really understanding, you know, based on objectives and core competencies, you know, where are we strong? You know, where are we weak? What are the threats? Just doing a general SWAT would be really important. But what what you're going to find is the general theme of this is managing that employment brand. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's very simple. I think, you know, especially nowadays with technology and the fact that um, so many, so many parts of um, the community, whether it be, you know, what we think of as our audience, that's actually our talent pool. Yeah. And fun, and and a lot of those people are a part of our industry vertical. You know, it may not be directly related to us, but they are in some way. Um, some of those are competitors, and so being able to tie it all together and be active in your industry, 
and contribute to the industry in a non-competitive way, just to make sure that, you know, what, what company A is facing is also what company C, D, and E is, are facing. Mm-hmm. And so why not all contribute as a, as a consortium to figuring out some of those issues and doing the, um, doing the um, information share in that way? Um, the other part is where you are linking that to community development. Mm-hmm. You know, look, in your community, there's a need for you to be involved. And whether that be with the high schools, whether it be with the local college, when you're not just interviewing, whether it's your internship program, um, how you utilize temper, temps, you know, in your space, um, whether you're going after specifically diversity and inclusion, all those areas, um, a lot of that has to do with your strategies of your brand and where if you're extending your brand into those areas, even though you may not have a job posting, you're recruiting. And Absolutely. so what happens is, yeah, if you do that type of fishing beforehand, when the job posting goes out, it's going into a favorable, affirmative type of environment where it almost has legs and it's getting through people because people know the brand, they know the culture, and they want to be a part of it. But where you've done nothing in any of those areas and you post, I mean, I call that the, and I'm not, there's no hit against any um, job posting areas, but I mean, that's the monster and that's the indeed route where it's absolutely a sea of job postings, but really they're just titles. You know, it's hard to know what that company's really about when you're seeing um, the job title come up in a big job search like that. But if the company's really been active and then you see the job description or the job title, you almost get a sense of what that's about. And you may even know someone or you're able to link with them on LinkedIn and leverage that or listen to a podcast where, you know, you've you've heard about them being featured on your show. Now I, I get a sense of them. There's a there's a face, there's a name. Anyway, so I, the reason why I bring this up is I just think people tend to wait too long before mm-hmm. they're setting their strategy, not only as an in- individual, but as a company. I think that's so incredibly powerful. And I, I just want to sit on that for a minute of, you know, you don't have to be the most well-known company in the world. You don't have to be, you know, a fortune company. You, you don't have to be a Google or a Facebook for people in your in your space to know who you are and to have a perspective on you. Your competitors know who you are. Um, your vendors know who you are. Your, your clients obviously know who you are. And um, if you haven't worked on your, your presence in the space, then the story that's being told about you is a story that you're not contributing to on an intentional way versus if you have an intentional strategy to be adding value in your community, to be maybe, you know, mentoring and coaching people, maybe having programs that, um, that let people uh, with diverse backgrounds into your industry and that really support them. That will pay off. You know, it's, it's, it's good just for, for good sake. And, and, you know, not everything has to be about paying off, but it really will pay off. You'll see that people will be attracted to that and you won't have to be doing so much hard work to, um, 
to engage candidates because they'll actually be drawn to you. You'll be getting applications instead of having to, you know, be chasing people down. Uh, you know, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the large companies have corporate responsibility groups that are tied to government affairs or, um, you know, community affairs. And that's what you had mentioned, you know, trying to do right for right's sake. Um, what, what I would tell you, though, is for smaller companies, you know, a lot of this is really just aligning your different functions internally. Mm-hmm. Because we're marketing now. I'm now. I'm truly giving um, trade secrets at this point because, <laughs> I, although I didn't, um, I didn't coin the phrase. But when I heard it, I absolutely fell in love with it, and it's probably my closest relationship um, <laughs> right now. I'm dating uh, venture philanthropy because <laughs> I, I really, I mean, it, it speaks to me so much, and what it venture philanthropy and you could look it up there's some great videos out there to explain it but where people really want to give back and be charitable and do the right thing they often think that it is a a whole that they're just you know kind of throwing out money and they and they shouldn't expect something back right but you would also dream of getting something back from that effort or being recognized for it Mm -hmm. which you know is, is the goal but I think if you could tie some of your internal efforts together, similar to the way you and I were just describing, you know, being involved and just participating, um, you know, marketing along with your employee initiatives group that's trying to engage your internal employees so they're so they're they feel like they don't want to leave and so that you can retain them Mm -hmm. um, along with your, you know, external affairs or community affairs department, pulling all those together to do a panel discussion on the industry mm-hmm. um, that you work in. And then you go after um, different competitors. And this isn't, um, this is something that everyone would do um, because they all want to give back is that you could have different competitors contribute talent to the panel and it's to the local college. And mm-hmm. it's to address essentially the need for, um, you know, evolving technology you know, in this particular space or the fact that, you know, we're all challenged with the talent gap and, you know, and all these jobs are going to be going away because of automation. Well, we need to be talking about that in different stages, whether it be with industry associations, with schools, um, with um, nonprofit organizations. So it it just really takes a, a small amount of time and yes, money and investment is important, but if you incorporate this into how you, let's say, engage your internal employees to be more active in the community, and then you have recruiting attached to it and they're out supporting the effort, it's not overtly any of those missions. Now it's the corporate brand orchestrating this and having other people involved with it that's the value. And funny enough, <clears throat> as long as you decide to do it multiple years and it becomes a consistent thing and more and more people get involved and more and more people decide to contribute, it becomes a venture philanthropy, self-sustaining initiative mm-hmm. that isn't now a, 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 a money pit. It's actually a, a strategic way of bolstering your recruiting without actually investing more in your recruiting. But it also extends your brand from a marketing standpoint. 
It helps your community affairs. So anyway, I, I could talk about this all day because it's just such it's a, it's an epiphany that I went through myself. And I've always been trying to talk companies into doing the right thing from a diversity standpoint, um, inclusion from a veteran services standpoint, which is a big um, part of my life right now and working with veterans on their successful transition into civilian careers. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes time and effort. And there's ways that you can build collaborative, engaging strategies. And it doesn't need to be seen as, well, we don't have the money for this. How are we going to do this? And we don't have time for this. And no, no, no. There's enough people with this common need. Just this orchestrated sequence of team, uh, sequence of team together and go for it. And you'll find that the doors will just open to you. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, this episode is going to be airing right before Veterans Day. And um, it's it's so incredibly important. Like you said, there's there's the there's just the, the reason to do it is that it's it's important. And if you have this value, if you believe in supporting a diverse workforce, if you believe in supporting people who've contributed so much to our country and to our safety and, and security, um, you're doing it for the right reason as well. But it, it does also cause a significant benefit um, in other ways as well. And that's okay. It's okay to, um, it's okay to benefit from uh, the good things that you're doing out in the world. That's not, that doesn't, cancel them out. Um, and so if, if that can even motivate maybe some people who don't have those warm, fuzzy feelings, um, that's worth it as well. And so, um, anything that, that you can do as a, as a business leader, um, that that's going to add value to support, um, your, your beliefs in terms of diversity and inclusion, which guess what, you know, diverse workforce actually produces better results anyway. Um, you, you'll get Absolutely. better ideas. You'll prevent yourself from falling into some big holes. Um, we've seen, you know, brand mistakes that companies have made, and you know that they clearly didn't have a person of color on their team, or they would have maybe pointed out That's this right. isn't a good plan, or they've released a product, and you know there are no women that were involved in developing that product because it's it's missing some key features. Or, you know, people are making mistakes in terms of LGBT inclusion, and you're like, eek. Clearly, you don't have, have many of those people represented on your team or you're not supporting um, them speaking up because um, they're, they're really helping you. So it's it's good in a lot of ways um, and, and really adds value. So I think that's so incredibly important. Thank you for that, Brian. No, I, I appreciate you. All right. Now, you see, you really get all of these things so well. And I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, we are we are peas in a pod in terms of your interpretation of these things. It's, it's impressive. Thank you. I'm having so much fun talking to you. Now, um, you are a founder of a business, and um, I'd love to hear what you're seeing as you assess the, assess the state of your own business going into 2020. Well, as God would have it, I can actually say that I am able to, and I have been able to live exactly what I'm sharing. And that's, mm-hmm. it's tough because, you know, oftentimes, you know, people don't have that opportunity. Absolutely. So I was going through the entrepreneur, um, really the first and second year challenges of, of starting a business, um, having left Fox after 11 years. Mm-hmm. And I also lost my father during that time. Sorry. Which, um, thank you. And which I, I realized, you know, my, he, you know, and he wanted me to, you know, have the foundation of, of this business 
And so I give him so much credit. I'm, I'm sharing really all of his, his teaching. He, he, I always told him he was the great coach and, and he always said, well, great coaches need great players. So anyway, so, you know, my, my thought in coming into this though, um, over the two years and struggling, especially having lost him was I need to get back to my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things I did was start to reach out to schools and decide, just let me, let me start dedicating my time back and coaching people on the media industry. Uh, mm-hmm. Because again, some people want to get that foot in the door out here and um, ended up connecting with um, uh, a university out here and partnering with them on training. And I think it just, created a different tone in my voice. I think as I was also connecting with other, you know, people um, in the industry. And then um, uh, there was an engineering association um, that I, SMPTE, um, Society of Motion Picture Television Engineers, mm-hmm. that I was connected to when I was recruiting. But one of my longtime friends and, and clients was with them on the board and we orchestrated um, a career day for them that took like six months of planning and we were partnering with their chair. And so, wow, I just, you know, it, it just gave me a sense that even though it wasn't direct clients or I was driving revenue and any an entrepreneur knows you're doing a lot of free work and proposals, mm-hmm. et cetera. But this was a project based way that I can demonstrate to people my skill set. And obviously it was branding out to the external environment, but it was also helpful to me. And I can't tell you I did anything different over the full two and a half years because I just think it was that effort of giving back. But um, out of nowhere, and again, as God would have it, um, a client reached out and offered me some recruiting um, work and they've been now a a strong client for the past um, six months and then i had um, a couple of other um, you know people out of nowhere come up so um, it's been really a a good um, flow for me but the reason why i bring this up is um, one of my lifelong um, professional life uh, long pushes has been to create a talent incubator and Mm -hmm. it's essentially where you just are giving people um, high volume experience, emulating high performance. Mm-hmm. And similar to what people with an actor would say, having read a script and them saying to themselves, this is an award winning role. What most of us again, aren't paying attention to is what does high performance look like in the jobs that we have mm-hmm. and how can we, continuously improve ourselves to constantly push the envelope and get to higher, higher levels of performance. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm um, bringing this up is I've been working with veterans and I met over the last, you know, seven months or so, um, I've been working with the Goodwill um, of Southern California mm-hmm. and they have a veterans employment um, center um, based in Glendale. And we are launching an entire um, career development workshop with them. And it's just such the joy 
because it's venture philanthropy coming to fruition. And also on, I, I believe since this is the, it'll be airing on the 4th, I can share this, but um, an organization I'm on the advisory board of Veterans in Media and Entertainment, um, it's uh, vmeconnect.org. They are an amazing group of 3,700 veterans that are very much focused on being um, in all layers of the entertainment and media industry. And we are in partnership with AT&T launching a Veterans Media Fellowship that's going to be announced on the 4th of November this year. Um, And then it will start January 25th. And so these two external relationships to my core client base is really, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sad because, you know, obviously my dad would have, I really wish he could be here to enjoy this because it's so much of um, his teachings. But um, I would tell anyone that's going through um, the entrepreneurial path of, of challenge and struggle is you can apply the same concepts of self-analysis, you know, figuring out from a marketplace standpoint where you can kind of make an impact, get your brand out there, do it selflessly. Um, Based on that concept, you start to work on self-directed development type projects where you're emulating the best practices of what you want to do, what you want to be. And then through that, if you do that high volume enough, what's going to happen is somebody is going to see you Mm -hmm. or you're going to create the opportunity yourself that will put you in the best possible situation in 2020. And so I, I I think that's a a good way of um, ending up, but those are, that's really the algorithm or formula that we try to um, share with our clients. And, you know, even for myself, it's working. So I'm, I'm very thankful. Uh, I, I just can't tell you, even this podcast um, and meeting you um, was, was just um, a true blessing. So thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. Um, I am very uh, pleased to hear about that initiative. And um, I'm sure your dad would be, would be incredibly proud of, of what you're doing. And if you think about it, you know, back to what we started our conversation with at this point an hour ago, (laughs) but talking about um, the importance of uh, identifying a thread within your career and putting together those disparate pieces of information and, and building something out of that. And so the fact that you're taking your, your dad's service and, and what you saw there, and you're taking your, your passions and your beliefs, and then you're taking your experience in the media space and your ability to, um, to put teams together and, and recruit, um, and then your, your passion around creating talent and incubating talent and put that together into a single initiative. That is an exact story. That's an exact um, demonstration of what Absolutely. people should be doing. And, and it's really taking who you are as a person and, um, and the value that you can uniquely provide because of your, your experience, because of your passion, because this is something that you care about, you're going to, to do this more effectively. You're going to be able to put something together that other people wouldn't be able to because they just don't care about it as much as you do or in the same way that you do. Um, but then there are things that they can do that you couldn't do. And um, absolutely uh, so excited to, to hear about that and hope that that's um, incredibly successful. 
All right. Do you have time for like two or three more quick questions? Absolutely. Can I can I mention just re- something yes. real quick off of what you just said? And again, like your your um, your translation of this stuff and <laughs> your your ability to add to it is is really phenomenal. You know, there there is no competition anymore. Mm-hmm. I think what we we've we're taught to think that everything's a competition, but if you really think about it, some of the most successful businesses tend to have some kind of consortium, some kind of monopolistic, you know, uh, cohorts, uh, you know, at their core, whether it be the NFL or, you know, the different uh, sports associations, NCAA, um, you know, and the reason why I bring this up is where we think something's a competition, it usually limits who we will reach out to to partner. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, even if it's what we can would consider direct competitors or even people in the community where you have something in common with someone. And it goes back to what you said, your skill set may be absolutely complementary to someone else's skill set. It may not be in conflict. It's, it's something that you two or three or four or whatever the project ends up being can all work with together. And I think that's the key for entrepreneurs, especially small business people is really looking at your network of collaborators and making sure that you're leveraging that. Definitely. I think that that also speaks to just uh, a position of strength. If you are constantly worried about competitors, that shows that you're, you're afraid. You have vulnerabilities. There's something that you're worried about. But if instead you can say, you know what, we are going to be competing for customers and that's okay. Um, you know, people will decide what's the best you know, vendor for them, the best partner, the best service, whatever it is, but I'm still going to work with you on this because it'll make both of us better. And that's a better place to fight for those customers. If, if you're both um, feeling each other's strength, as opposed to you trying to kind of tear them down. Um, that's, that's not a good place to be. Uh, all right. One of the things that we like to share with our listeners is um, book recommendations and, and other, you know, podcasts, podcasts, um, uh, you know, videos, anything else, would you have anything um, based on our conversation today that you would recommend that people would read where they could um, kind of improve their thinking in this area? That's a good question. I think there are, I mean, the, the books that I know about in this space are so plentiful mm-hmm. that I would just say, get out there and go after it. Um, because Honestly, it's it's less about the specific um, person delivering it. It's about your acceptance of that information. Yeah, and find somebody that you can learn from that you maybe relate to in some way or challenges you in some way. Absolutely, and funny enough, you know your your podcast as a foundation. You know, it may be that um, you know, I guess from an audiobook standpoint, or um, watching um, some form of video, where you're able to actually see this person present on a panel or something like that, where you can connect to that person in one form of listening or learning, and then follow up with the book. Because I think, remember, self-help books are self-help books. I mean, they're so they're out there for everyone, but who really uses them effectively? And so, I think if you can create more of a multi-platform approach to understanding your own um, professional development. And again, the model of, um, you know, there may be a book specifically on self-analysis. 
There may be a book on um, putting what you've learned about yourself into practice. Um, then there's going to be a book on um, overcoming challenges. And so I think it ends up being an entire library that you would really need to do for your point in time where you feel most comfortable or not comfortable is, mm-hmm. and it's a total cop out on my part, you know, versus being able to tell you a specific uh, recommendation. There's a guy, and I don't know that I'm, let me um, figure if I could get the spelling, uh, but a gentleman named um, Simon Sinek. Oh, um, yes. You know who I'm talking about. Yep. Um, there's a <laughs> lot of videos, um, and he obviously writes a lot of books, but um, there was one particular TED Talk that he did on why. And yes. so, I mean, honestly, I would drop all the books, at least for, for the moment, and go watch that TED Talk because if you can get to the why – of why you want to do something, you had said it earlier, it really helps form your understanding and planning of how, what, and when you're going to get it done. And so that's a, a really big thing that I would point to. Absolutely. I I was introduced to that TED Talk years ago. And I can say that that just, um, I still think of it to this day and, and review it occasionally because it's it's just such an incredibly powerful foundation. All right. Um, Now here at Let's Talk Sales, we are focused on providing actionable best practices that our listeners can apply to their lives. I know you've shared a couple of different things, but is there one actionable tip that you'd really recommend that our listeners apply today? Oh, that's um, why. Yeah, I think I've I've mentioned a, a bunch, at least personally and you know, for the for the entrepreneur, and I, I want to really focus on something that you mentioned earlier about your theme of gratitude. Um, mm-hmm. That's upcoming because that's that that would be a real important thing for people to start to do when you when you need to break habits or you need mm-hmm. to break a cycle. And I think that's where a lot of us are challenged: is that it's it's such a cycle that we're in. And so doing something that is selfless, um, that you can create a theme that you'd have to then, you know, figure out a plan around. And again, it goes back to the same old um, process that I've been mentioning, but I'll, I'll mention it in, in theme. So we really focus on self, um, self-analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of... Um, interest, especially with all of the access to LinkedIn and other things where now that you know yourself, now it's important to set the goal. So yep. you use the landscape research to really go and find out who's out there doing what you want to do and who's the best at it and, and understand and really study their skill sets and their path. And their path's not going to be your path, but at least you can understand what they went through. And then the third part of it is now starting to craft what would I need to do to get on that path so mm-hmm. now you're creating your own self-direct self-development directed plan and which would likely include projects it could be through volunteerism right to jumpstart um, either your core brand or something as you want to do personally and mm-hmm. then you can to collaborate with others in the space. And this is really kind of your audition and showing off to people and getting in your brand extended further. And then finally, in putting it all together, 
it's trying to figure out from a venture philanthropy standpoint how you can actually make this into something that's recurring, uh, revenue generating, and sustainable. And I think if you were to just put those together, um, number one, on paper, like a vision board yourself, and then start to figure it out and how you can start to follow that, I think everyone would be able to find their why in that. And I think it would put you in a good situation. So your, your example of setting gratitude as your theme, I think, is the, the great starting point for people to, to use. And then they can use the algorithm to figure out what's going to be best for them. Absolutely. Thank you for that. That was that was incredibly powerful. Well, I have so much enjoyed our conversation today, Brian. Thank you so much for taking the time to participate. Thank you very much. You're incredibly insightful, and I really appreciate the opportunity of being on your podcast, and I um, wish you all the best in the future. Same to you. Um, it, this has been so much fun. If you want people to learn more about you and your work and everything that you've been talking about today, where should they go? Um, you could... Uh, visit um, maxedwardscompany.com. Um, I would also direct you to um, the partner sites or partner companies, um, Veterans in Media and Entertainment, vmeconnect.org. Um, and if you are in the Los Angeles area or you could check um, you know, the local area to see if they have a chapter, I would say get involved heavily. Um, there's also um, sports video group. Um, is, a, is an amazing organization that you can get involved with, and it's sportsvideo.org. Um, those would be the main ones that I'm you know, trying to be as active as I can and um, you know, would love other people to get involved. All right. Thank you for that. That, um, that sounds great. I will be looking into those as well. Um, well, thank you again, Brian, so much for speaking with me today. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find thank the you. notes and the resources for everything we've been talking about at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 201. Be sure to tune in next week for an interview with Judy Umlas, the Senior VP at the International Institute of Learning. We'll be continuing our conversation on gratitude. And in the meantime, check out this Friday's inspirational episode where I am sharing a great quote that is sure to inspire you. As a reminder, if you have any feedback for us, topics, questions you want us to address, guests that you would recommend that we talk to, please reach out at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review um, wherever you're listening, especially on Apple Podcasts. That will help more people find the show and it lets us know what's working and where we have some room to improve. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchok, and me, Elizabeth Freck. Happy selling!